Hi, welcome to Help Me Understand. We're a podcast to help close the gap of injustices and inequities by talking about current events with members of our local community. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Help Me Understand. Jason Holmes earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Minnesota Duluth. He also earned a Master's of Business Administration from the University of St. Thomas and graduated in the top 10% of his graduating class, earning an induction into Beta Gamma Sigma, which is an international business honor society. He started his career in pharmaceutical sales and spent 13 years in the real estate industry as an entrepreneur and now works as an independent contractor in the management information systems field. Outside of work, he is the Minnesota captain of Black Men Run, a national organization whose mission is to encourage health and wellness among black American men by promoting a culture of staying fit. He's also a snowboard instructor who is passionate about promoting activities that black Americans are traditionally not involved in. Thanks, Jason, for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. So to start off, what does justice mean to you? Mm, um, not necessarily politically correct, but kind of in a way that doesn't sound so reactionary. I guess justice, the first thing that comes into my mind is um, payback, I guess, um, held accountable. Oh, um, interesting. If you, you know, for example, George Floyd, like, if you take my life, something has to happen to you. Sure. Um, taking my life and taking your life isn't necessarily the right answer. But justice to me is you are held accountable for your actions, um, regardless of what role you play in society. So that would kind of be the kind of the first thing that, that pops into my mind as I, you know, kick it around. And that doesn't seem to be um, a role, at least, as, as black men have been murdered. Um, around the country from police over and over and over again. This is not, justice hasn't been served. And I think when you have a situation like this, when Justin has, justice hasn't been served for so long, you know, we're talking about hundreds of years, you get what you got out of this. You get rioting, you get um, emotional reactions. Um, so that's kind of the first thing that, that comes to mind. So it sounds like a lot of accountability is the focal point. Yeah, accountability. You know, I don't, it's, it's the fact that people get to murder a man and go home and sit down with their family to me is just insane. The fact that it has to take riots to even get a person arrested is insane. So I guess as I think through it more, it's more, I have more examples of what justice is not maybe than what justice actually looks like. And that's probably more because of the fact that I feel as a black man, I don't see justice often. So it's hard for me to kind of define exactly what it is. Sounds like um, as a person of color, like you feel like every bit of justice has to be fought for. It's never ever just granted. Exactly, yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's not something that you know, even if you just get outside of not something as extreme as murder, for example, you know, there's police brutality has happened in our community for forever. I mean, I grew up in situations where, you know, police were around. You knew the police that were, you know, the bad cops in the neighborhood and they would do stuff all the time. And, 
there's no accountability there. There's no, you know, nobody's holding them in charge of anything. You're just going about your day, terrorizing a particular group of people, and then nothing's held accountable. And I feel like in every other aspect of America, you know, you, you, you can't commit a crime without, you know, especially in our community, you've seen it with black men all the time. You commit a crime, oh, you're going to see justice, all right? You're going to see, you know, a penalty that's probably way extreme, um, way over the top to what somebody that commits an equal crime would do. So we see the reverse of justice, so we know it's possible. Um, we just don't see it as it benefits our community. Fair. When you think of the leaders of tomorrow, what do they need to understand now? Um, now, as far as like the climate, are you talking more like actionable type of things that they can maybe apply in the future? I think if you look at who will be leading us in the future, and those future leaders are living in this current environment right now, what do they need to know, be aware of, in order to be a effective leader where justice is fair and equal? Um, I, th I think in order to change anything or to lead properly, you have to understand history. Um, I think everything starts with that. Um, so in this particular case, you have to, if you are going to serve the black community, you have to understand you know, what the black community has been through. And for young people today, they're seeing this for the first time. They might not know the history. They might not know slavery, um, Jim Crow. They might not know the civil rights movement, um, the nonviolent protests, Martin Luther King, things of that nature. So they're seeing this for the first time on television and thinking, you know, wow, what's, what's going on? Everybody's out there burning. Everybody's out there rioting. Um, so I would think go back and learn your history for one. And then two, after you learn your history, I think the most important thing right now is to understand that the climate's changing. Things that people applied in the past, for example, civil rights, uh, what might have worked back then in the 60s when we didn't have social media. Um, Nonviolent protesting, when you think about it, was really created so that it drew attention to the cause. At some point to get empathy from the rest of the United States, you had to show like we are out here in the streets, nonviolent, and we are getting our heads beat in. That climate's changing now because we're seeing, we have social media, we have cameras, you're being inundated. If I go on my Instagram right now, I'm seeing 50, 60 different feeds of stuff that's been going on around the country that might not get the headlines that a Jordan Floyd might, but just brutality against black people that get me outraged every day. So with that kind of, you know, stimulus, I guess, people need to understand that the tide's changing. People are fed up. This is officially getting old. And with that becomes emotional reactions to things. When you have not been heard for so long, then you have to change your course of action. And I think that's what you're starting to see now. So I think as young leaders understand you have to find new, innovative ways to approach this situation, the old ways of marching and protesting. Yes, it gets the words out, but we have proof of the fact that that's not getting it done. It just hasn't. And so that's where like people like myself are starting to 
kind of get a little edgy, to say the least. I can I can understand that. I have I tried to find a balance with social media to not let it consume me because it's easy to do that. But I've also found myself more jumping on that because it is an easy way to reach people and to educate people. The hard part for me is when, as you mentioned with history, people need to understand history and how many years that people of color have been oppressed and have fought and what methods they've used based on the time or the era that those situations were happening, what means they had available. And now I'm constantly hearing the past is the past. Can't we just live in the present and get along? What is your response to that? Um, I think when you live in a society that's still, that where people still benefit from the things that happened in the past, um, you can't be so quick to dismiss it. I do understand that things change, generations go by, but you know, my parents were raised in the civil rights movement. So this isn't something that's happened hundreds of years ago. This was just in the sixties. You know, my parents came up here. Uh, my mom's white, my dad's black. They came up here specifically for the fact that this was supposed to be a climate in which interracial relationships and interracial marriages were accepted. And it wasn't too long after they got up here that they passed, or not too long prior to them getting up here that they passed a law to make it legal for them to even get married. So these are my parents. This isn't something that can just be easily dismissed. You know, we can talk about generational trauma and things of that nature. I'm not as well versed in some of that stuff. I'm not a you know psychologist by any means. But when you think about conversations that just happen in the home, if my great grandfather caught hell, he'd talk to my grandfather about it. My grandfather experienced the same thing, caught hell as well. He talked to my dad about it. You know, that's just a couple of generations ago. My dad is going to have those same conversations with so it's irresponsible to say, forget the past. I think that's too dismissive, and I think it's easy to kind of turn away from things that make us uncomfortable instead of coming to the table and having those awkward conversations. You know, and maybe instead of dismissing it, have some conversations with people that have felt it. There's so many other things that we don't dismiss that have happened a long time ago that we still talk. We still talk about World War One. We still talk about the Vietnam War. Well, those are all things that are, you know, important to talk about and understand the implication that they've had on our country. Well, the civil rights movement was not too long after that, but we're supposed to just forget about those type of things. So that's, that's always a tough conversation to have and leads to some interesting dialogue. <laughs> Since we're mentioning history, um, I've noticed a lot of, I don't know if conflict is the right word, but a lot of discussion about the statues being removed and oh they're part of history we need to keep them to educate people or for them to know what happened yet it seems like the ones that they want that these people are advocating to keep are the ones that are traumatic for some people i know that you've mentioned that understanding history is important in that regard, how do you feel about the statues? I think there's a difference between understanding your history and honoring it. Mm -hmm. I think those are two very different things. Um, you know, I hear a lot of 
discussion around the Confederate flag, for example, that's triggering. I understand that there was a civil war that was fought, and there was a lot of different reasons why that war went on, but the main war, reason why that war went on was slavery, flat out. Now, whether or not it's a conversation about slavery around economics, because I've heard people make that argument that yeah, it really wasn't because slavery was immoral. It was more because, well, the South is getting free slave labor, and we're not. So we need to stop slavery immediately so that we can, you know, kind of be competitive economically. When I see the flag, regardless of the reasons for it, that flag reminds me of people that have been lynched. It reminds me of racism. And I feel like if you are doing anything that's impacting people that have made such a contribution to this country, then it just has to go away. You can pick up a book and continue to read about it. I don't have to see a statue of somebody that owns slaves every time I drive by, you know, my community center or, you know, my state capital, for example. Those are things that I feel like are honoring the wrong things and not moving us forward. You know, if we're going to talk about let's move forward, well, let's move forward from the statues as well. If that's the take we're going we're gonna to have on it, you know, we can't, you can't have it both ways. We can't forget the past, but not forget slave masters or people who are in powerful positions that continue to push this narrative. Speaking of lynchings, I'm sure you've heard in the news recently about, I believe in three states now, and I, I feel like every time I look at the news, there's another incident of a black man hanging themselves to commit suicide. What is your take on that? Um. You know, I'm not by any means a, a suicide expert by any means, um, but if I can speak in generalizations, black men are not going to hang themselves. It's just not a thing that we're going to do. Um, it's not that suicide isn't a real thing in the black community amongst men, but that's just not a way we're going to do it. Um, the other thing that I found interesting about all the hangings, um, at least as of a day ago, they all conveniently happened in places where there's no cameras. To me, that just screams of well thought out, well planned. There's cameras everywhere. Right. Somewhere, somehow, somebody had to catch footage of something. But within an hour or two of somebody hanging from a tree, you rule that a suicide, closed case, and let's move on, people. That kind of goes back to the conversation we were just having about you know, moving on, sweep it under the rug, let's forget this. No, we need to address these things head on, have the right people in charge, investigate it and figure out what's going on. It seems very suspicious to me, but with, without the right people in place to kind of follow through on that, you know, where do you go to get that justice that we were just talking about? Who do you hold accountable for that? Right. Um, with no definitive way of answering the question on, whether or not they did it to themselves. That's a really good point. With the no cameras, and like you said, with the social media, being able to film, for example, George Floyd's murder, without that, it would have been he said, she said, they said, we said. There's proof, and it seems like people are getting more creative to avoid that evidence. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, it just doesn't seem plausible that all of this happened so close to everything that's going on um, across the country with the rioting. Um, 
it, it just is seems too coincidental. You don't hear, you haven't heard about black men hanging themselves at any point prior to this. Right, and then what is it now? Six, I think. Yes, sounds about right. I heard five I, for sure as of yesterday. I believe one person they thought might have been a Hispanic male, but. Shifting gears a little bit to trying to bring people together, what do you think needs to be done to bring our community and peace officers together? Mm, I mean, I think just the way you worded it, um, they're supposed to be peace officers. I'm assuming you're talking about the police. I guess when I say peace officers, you tell me what that means to you. To me, it means what the police are supposed to be here for. They're here to protect and serve. To me, that means you are here to protect and serve everybody. Even in a situation in which you are approaching a criminal, you're here to protect and serve that person as well. You're not here to take their life. You're not here to be judge and jury on a situation that you just got called to minutes prior. And you make a call to either put your hands on him or take his life. Um, so to me, when I hear peace, I think you are here to make our community peaceful. And that means intervention. That doesn't mean, you know, strong arming. That, that means looking out for every party within that community and not just, you know, people that look like yourself. Um, so to your questions, like, what do we do to bring, ah, that's, that's, Probably have to think about that a little bit more to answer it correctly. Um, I hear a lot of stuff about police reform and changing the way that you know police operate within the community. I, I truly believe heavily in the fact that police should come from the communities that they serve. You can't take a guy, you know, from Stillwater, for example, and throw him in North Minneapolis and expect him to understand kind of the unwritten rules of the city. You take somebody that was maybe born and raised or at least spent time in that community, you know how to deal with people differently. You know how to talk to people differently. I could be a police officer and go on West Broadway right now and de-escalate situations on a regular basis just by knowing, you know, I might know your dad. Um, I might know you personally. If nothing else, we have a cultural bond that I can speak to you in a way that's like, hey, Let's calm this down. You know, the first thing when I heard about George Floyd, first thing I thought was he, he his life was taken from him over $20. Now, to me, that's a situation where if I pull up to the scene as a police officer and I'm from that community, and I might not know George personally, but I'm from that area. George, come on, man. $20. Let's, let's go back in the store. Let's talk. Let's figure this out. Every video I saw, he was not resistant. He wasn't belligerent. He didn't come across threatening. That's a situation where you come in as a peace officer and make peace. Let's go back in the store and figure this out because that might not be a fake $20 bill. Right. Um, you may have that $20. I know for a fact I've had fake money in my pocket and didn't know it. Sure. There's fake money in the system sure. everywhere. It could have just been a simple mistake as that. So you come trying to de-escalate a situation rather than coming in already with a mindset. And I feel like that comes from having people within the community that just know how to deal with people of different backgrounds. Understanding the culture, yeah. the social norms yep. that are acceptable in that area. Yeah. 
Because that certainly does differ, you know, mm -hmm. in different regions even. Yeah, and, and you know, vice versa. If I'm, if I'm, you know, from Minneapolis, born and raised, and, you know, I go out to, you know, rural Hastings somewhere, <laughs> I'm not going to know how to interact with people out there. We, we, you know, different cultures, different upbringings. That's a, a totally different situation. So the same thing can apply. Now, you don't hear stories about people losing their lives, but if we're talking about de-escalating stuff and figuring out things and really bringing peace to a community, send somebody out there that's familiar with that atmosphere to interact with that person and not, you know, somebody like myself who, you know, has never even been in that predicament before. I think that would be a, a good first step. I think it's interesting that you brought up going to a place that, where you wouldn't feel comfortable or you wouldn't know their social norms or necessarily their intimate culture. Yet as a person of color, I feel that there's a reservation where when you go to an unfamiliar territory, there's a sense of observation, processing, trying to figure out where, where you can fit in, where as a reverse doesn't seem the same when it's a white person. They, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think you nailed it. I think um, being a black male in the United States, I have to observe constantly on what's going on, social norms, how to fit in here, how to fit in there. It's not that I necessarily change who I am. I feel like I'm pretty consistent regardless of the person that I'm interacting with. But you do, you, you're paying much more attention. If I go to a bonfire somewhere in Duluth, I'm paying attention to a lot of things when I walk in there, right? Right. Um, it's just, I don't know if it's just culturally like you're just brought up that way and it just kind of happens. Um, but to your point, yeah, the reverse should absolutely happen. You're coming into a community that's not yours. Respect it and pay attention to it before you decide to react. And I feel like that's where a lot of that white supremacy mindset comes in in that I'm the boss, I'm the ruler, I'm coming into this area and I'm going to, you know, inflict my will rather than coming in and saying, hey, let me understand what's going on here, understand the people, understand the culture. And that's where that community policing thing comes in huge. Our country obviously has had an issue with that throughout history where the quote unquote white man comes in and takes over with their power and expects everyone to conform to their ways, starting way back with the indigenous people. Ultimately, it's a power thing, and people don't give up power quietly. And I feel like that's where you're starting to see a lot of the stuff starting to rumble up, is because things are shifting a little bit. And when power shifts, things get violent. If you look at any type of exchange of power over the history of the world, it has not been done peacefully. It just hasn't. It's threatening to think I have to give up my place in the world and hand it over to somebody else. It's just not a concept that, you know, especially as men, like we're, we're just built different <laughs> in that way. You know what I mean? We're, we're competitive, we're territorial. Um, so that we're just not handing things over. And I think that's what you're starting to see. You know, our, our country is becoming increasingly diverse. Um, leadership positions, whether it's politics or in corporate America, are becoming increasingly diverse. And if I've been in a situation where I've been in power, you know, for generations, that's threatening. 
and a lot of times threatening situations result in, you know, violence and anger. Yeah. What are the next steps to take in our community with the police department, our justice system? I mean, obviously, I mean, you may not live in Minneapolis proper, but you're familiar with the community. And I'm sure you're aware of the movement to defund the police. What are your thoughts on that? What do you think the next step should be or shouldn't be? Or um, So I think all of the conversations that have been going on have been positive and productive. I have been impressed by the way that things are starting to move, right? Um, I think the one part of this entire thing that is frustrating to me is the key part of this whole story I don't feel like is getting talked about. And that is, we can reform police forever. We can make all sorts of changes. We can defund this and put money into this program and that program. Talking about our first question about justice. Until you throw somebody in prison, I don't feel like much is going to change. I think there's a lot of symbolic changes that happen in times like this where it feels good it looks good um you know people get out and start making things happen and that makes us feel good right so that's important too is that we need right. to you know feel like we're we have an action and we have a voice in this right but ultimately if people keep dying then has there really been change and i don't feel like enough is being taught i haven't heard anybody speak on the fact that if an unarmed man is killed by the police, he goes to jail. Just like any other common criminal. Just like criminal. anybody other common criminal. I have a concealed and carry license. Um, I've had it ever since we were able to have it here in Minnesota, so I've renewed it a number of times, go through the classes. Every single one puts such an emphasis on the fact that before you pull that trigger, you better be sure that that threat is still in place. Because if there is a single evidence anywhere that the threat was leaving, the person was running, the person turned their back, or you were safe in any way, and you pull that trigger, you're going to prison. They drill that into your head nonstop. I, I, I can't for the life of me understand why that doesn't apply to the police. We see so many situations, just the one that just happened in Georgia. Somebody's running away. I don't care if he has a taser. Big deal. I don't care if he fought you off. Big deal. You have his wallet. You have his driver's license. You have his car. Right. He's running on foot He's away. He's running from on foot, and you were called to the scene because of a DUI situation. Somebody, you know, sleep in their car that was apparently intoxicated. So now you have an intoxicated man where you have all his stuff. Let him run. Where's he gonna go? Okay, we'll, we'll pick you up later. Right. You know that's fine. I'm not saying he shouldn't be account held accountable for right. For whatever he was doing for the cops to get called in the first place, but you don't kill a man over that. And that's that's the frustrating part about this entire thing. I don't feel like enough emphasis. So I would like all of that conversation to get put on the back burner. And the very first thing that we start talking to our politicians about are when do people start going to jail? When is there accountability? When is there accountability? You know, we, we've had conversations about um, incentives and incentive alignments and stuff. And that's a, a, a business term or whatnot about people just kind of people don't act unless they are incentivized to act. 
you can't really, it's very hard to screen the police or a potential police officer, whether or not they're racist or not. You know, that, that's a, that's a tough thing to pull out in an interview. Right. Um, nobody's coming into an interview and admitting that, right? Um, I mean, unless they're wearing a Confederate flag or something. <laughs> unless I mean, that, I don't know. there may be some places where that's actually encouraged. <laughs> that's that's support, true. So, that's true. So we don't want to get away from, from that. But even if you do reform and you do all these other things, if you, if you continue to hire a racist police officer, they're going to find a reason to show their racism and either harm somebody or kill them. And until they are incentivized not to, it's never going to stop. And so you incentivize them not to by saying, you will go to prison. And I guarantee you overnight, that would that would change the way people think about all this. If I'm a racist police officer and I think, ooh, I better have this right, or I'm going to prison for 20 years, I guarantee you cops would all of a sudden find a way to de-escalate a situation without pulling the trigger. But that doesn't seem to be a conversation I'm hearing out there. And really, if we're talking about justice, you know, all the outrage that you see all the way across the world, but particularly here in Minnesota and as it spread throughout the country, it's not just about George Floyd. This is about all of it. This is a breaking point. George Floyd just happened to tip the scales. Everything right. came kind of together at one moment. The world's listening. We're home because of COVID. Right. You know, there's no distraction with sports. <laughs> so this is it. This is right. what we're getting hit with. And so that frustration is being let out because it's like, this is enough. And it's one thing to have one of our brothers or sisters' lives being taken. It's another thing to see, like, nobody's going to pay for it. Like, I'm sitting here now, it's, what, middle of June, and I already know he's going to get acquitted. Mm. And I know that not because that's what I want or not because I'm pessimistic. I'm a very optimistic person. I know that because I've seen it happen every single time. I can't think of a single time where a police officer went to jail over this. Other than the one police officer of color who killed a white woman. Exactly. That's, that's the only one I know of. And that's where I was going next, the one time. What role do you think the police unions have in all of this? I mean, we've well, I shouldn't say we, maybe I don't know, but if you've read the Bob Kroll letter, that tells you everything you need to know. Um, if that's where your leadership is coming from, if your leadership position is not to show empathy, not to understand that you need to lead in a way that guides your fellow officers, but starts to condemn the character of the man that was just murdered, you have a problem at the top of leadership. And I don't know a lot about the Minneapolis Police Union or police unions in general. That's actually the first time I've really, I mean, I've heard his name pop around, but that's the first time I've ever seen him or heard anything about him. Right. And I'm like, you know, that's where you go with it. That's, that's your response when you see an entire country burning. Right. That's your response. That That's not leadership. When you mentioned that uh, talking about George Floyd's life or criticizing who he was or whatever, how does, 
how does that lead conversations with you? For example, if someone comes up to you and says, well, you know he was a criminal, right? What's your response to that? Um, it's, I get angry almost every time I hear that. And the reason why I get angry is because it is extraordinarily arrogant to me to think that you can decide to take somebody's life and justify it by saying he was a bad person. I, I guarantee you, if we dug up anything on anybody in this room, there's going to be a lot of stuff that somebody could look around and say, oh, he deserved it. Lord knows. Don't go uh, looking at my closets, please. Please. Let's not. Yeah, that. I mean, I'm standing here testifying <laughs> for myself. Like, you right. know, you, you can make a story. If I die tomorrow, you can make a storyline. Right. Quickly. I, I don't think anybody has ever said that a person shouldn't be punished for a crime that they commit. We're talking about not feeling like you're in such a position of superiority that you can make the call to take my life. Over $20. Over $20 or over whatever. Right. When you think about all of the cases, every single time he smokes weed, he was selling cigarettes. He looked intimidating because he had a hoodie on. There's all these justifications that, again, going back to that sweeping things under the rug theme, where it's like, let's continue the narrative that black men, since that seems to be the theme here, are dangerous, are up to no good, which is what's feeding all this racism to begin with. So let's keep that narrative up, and then let's just dismiss it. And that's been going on, you know, since the beginning of this country. Forever. I mean, we could go down many roads on how that impacts people, you know, psychologically, and how you could be desensitized to the fact that, you know, well, if I start to look at you as um, less than human and you die, then that death really isn't a big deal. And I always try to bring it back home because everybody, whether it's yourself or your immediate family, you got family that have done some things that probably landed them in jail or maybe that should have landed them in jail. Right. You know, when you start to internalize it like that, like, did they, should they have died? That's, that's a permanent thing that impacts a lot of people. And definitely outside the scope of a police officer's responsibilities. Exactly. Yep. I mean, you nailed it with peace officer. Your job is not, your job is to de-escalate situations. That's it. Right. You're not there, you're not a judge. Right. You're not there to make those calls. You're, you are a serviceman to the community. And I think we lose sight of that. And I think we also lose sight of the fact that we pay your salary. Your job is to serve us. We pay for you. One step further on that, when you look at uh, a situation where, let's say, a victim's family sues the city, the police don't pay for that. The officer who committed that act doesn't, but the taxpayers do. How is that justifiable? Yeah. Goes, they go all the way back to the person that committed the crime is never held accountable. Exactly. And that's justice. Are there any personal experiences um, that you've encountered with the police that you want to share? I've had many, 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 many experiences with um, the police. Uh, my first Probably early recollection, like I talked about before, about community policing and how, like, you know, you kind of knew 
who the good cop, bad cops were as a, you know, six-year-old on a bicycle. You kind of started to pick up on things. Um, so, you know, it, it started light for me as far as, you know, getting ran out of, you know, the park or whatever for being there too late. But, you know, the cops coming a little bit too aggressive or you start hearing stories about friends of yours, older brothers getting beat up mm-hmm. or whatever the case. So that starts to kind of plant the seed. Proceed a little bit further, my first real negative situation that I can think of happened my sophomore year in high school. Um, So I grew up in Brooklyn Center, Brooklyn Park. Um, So we drove out to Cottage Grove. There used to be, you know, a nightclub out there that we would go to. So we went out to... As a minor? uh, No, this was back when they, um, the uh, 16 and up. Oh, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I can't remember the name of it. (laughs) My first you know, life-threatening situation with a police officer happened then. We pulled over, got gas. Everybody used to go to a gas station that was up the street. Somebody at some point didn't pay for $5 worth of gas. We drove off. It wasn't our car that didn't pay, but they identified our car, I guess, through cameras at the time or whatever the case may be. Police pulled us over, you know, a mile up the street as we started heading out of there. First, we're pulled over. Nobody really knows what's going on. All of a sudden, probably no less than six, seven squad cars show up on the scene. So now it's like, all right, there's a problem. How many people were in the car? It was um, four of us. So me and three of my boys. Okay. And it was... Seven squad cars for four minors. Yeah. Okay. Um, One white male, three black males. Just to kind of paint a demographic picture here as we go and so it was guns drawn from the beginning Mm -hmm. and we're on the side of the road you know just like you would see you know in clips on a movie on our knees hands above our head with guns on us over five dollars worth of gas that we didn't even steal but either way it's five dollars worth of gas and it's guns drawn now this is in the 90s Black men were, were being shot then, too. Right. But you would hear more about brutality, you know, people getting beat up, things of that nature. So Rodney King. Yeah, so I, I don't want to say it was, you know, I don't want to be insensitive to anybody that may have lost their life to gunfire, but they're, they're typically it was, you know, less less of an occasion where somebody would get killed by getting shot. But if you think about it, any wrong move, dropping your hands at all, a twitch, you know, your neck starts itching, anything. And it could have been over for any one of us or all of us. So that was my first violent situation where I was like, okay, this is this is real. This is bigger than just, you know, police in the community. So then my, my next scenario happened at the State Fair. I won't bore you with the, the details, but there was oh, a little bit of, <laughs> there was a little bit of a um there was a bungee jump area by the haunted house. Um, some some people were up there, you know, not jumping or whatever, taking a long time. So I was with a group of kids. You know, everybody's kind of talking trash. You know, jump, jump. You know, well, are you scared? Whatever, whatever. So another group of kids says something to us, and there's a little bit of a confrontation. You know, not quite a fight, but a little pushing and shoving, whatever. Police come. That turns into an argument or whatever. So one of my friends gets handcuffed. Well, he happened to be the one that drove. Um, and so we're trying to explain to the officer, he drove, he has the keys, can we get the keys? You know, the officers are like, 
you know, fuck what you guys are talking about. You're not getting the keys, you're not getting anything. Sir, you know, he has the keys. This is this isn't this is pre Uber, pre cell phones, you know, right. it's like we're at the state fair. Can we get the keys? Well, me and this cop started getting into an argument over it. He's trying to tell me that I'm interfering with the arrest. He's already in cuffs. So he's already taken into custody. He's not in the car at this point. Me and him start arguing. More cops show up on the scene. Well, to make a long story short, as I'm arguing with this one cop, this other one comes up on me, and I see him kind of hit the, you know, the extended baton that they come out. So I hear the click, and I turn around, and he's coming at me. And he says something along the lines of, you niggers think you're so tough, or something around that line. Keep in mind, this was, what, 90s? This was this, this would have been probably 92. Okay. Yeah, because it was um, right between the, the summer of my uh, junior year and my, uh, my um, senior year in high school. So he's turning, he's coming at me, and then all-out brawl ensues. Me and this cop are going at it. His other cops come at it. I got a bunch of stitches up here. I still got a scar from it. Spent, you know, the weekend and some change in the hospital because I got I got a pretty good beat down. And this was all over trying to get keys so that we could drive home, get his car out of the state fair so we don't get tickets or towed right. and being, you know, in the parking lot of the state fair and, you know, got the hell beat out of me. So missed my, you know, senior year of playing football because I can't put a helmet on my head. And this all originally started with an altercation between the group you were with and another group of kids. Right, yeah. Did it ever escalate to weapons being drawn amongst it? So you guys are just arguing. The police come in and start arresting your friend. Right. Did they ever tell you what they were arresting him for? They jumped on our group. It was a group of white kids, a group of us, and... All the attention immediately came to us from the beginning, which, you know, I can't remember the specific details of how everything, you know, the argument started with the right. police, but I'm sure it had to do with the fact like, yo, what, you know, this is, there's two parties involved. Right. Why is all the attention over here? Right. Again, why are you coming with a hundred police officers? You know, it's an exaggeration, obviously, but you're coming with force from the beginning and all the attention is on our end. And, you know, we weren't doing much. It was just, you know, some teenage. Right you know, bumping heads type of silly stuff that should have just been, again, peace officers. Right. Should have just been de-escalated. Look, man, get out of here. Yeah. Y'all go that way. Y'all go that way. We're calling it a night. Get out of the But it turned into that. And so the last example I have is um, my freshman year in college. I'm with one of my boys. We're at um, JCPenney's. I went to college in Duluth, University of Minnesota Duluth. We're at the JCPenney's up there in the mall. And there had been a um, armed robbery at the bank in Duluth, and the description was two black males. That's it. No height. No complexion. Weight. Nothing. Two black males. Put into perspective. Just a guessment. I know I'm I'm not very good with population and demographics, but like. Approximately how many people of color were living in Duluth, do you think, at that time? Like, like what's maybe even a percentage? Would it be less than 5%, less than 20%? Yeah, I would say probably, you know, 10% might be, you know. I mean, we had 100 kids in the Black Student Association. Um, okay, alone, for the so, whole university. Right, yeah. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I think at the time, you know, it might have been 12,000 students or something like that. So, okay. you know, put that in the scope. But in and out in the, com- you know, in the community, you know. Even was, less. Yeah, even less. So, two black males. Gotcha. And so, we're within minutes of us walking in Jay's Bank. We just got to the mall. And, again, get on the ground, guns drawn. These cops just run up on us, throw us to the ground, guns on our backs. And... We're talking about literally not having a clue on what's going on. Nobody's explaining nothing. We just have these officers run up on us, screaming and hollering. You've seen the, you know, you've seen cop videos. All this commotion, all this aggression, and we're laying face down in the aisle of J.C. Penney with guns on us. And one of our professors happened to be walking by, so he saw it all. And you know, there's some other witnesses or whatever. And it ended up being we got taken down to the station, questioned. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I guess the same scenario happened with like two or three other group of people. And I don't know if they ever even end up catching the, the real people that ended up committing the robbery. But as, as they're arresting random black guys around Duluth, you know, the people that actually did the robbery is, you know, long gone at this point. Right. But when you look at the people, so there were a couple of different groups we just happened to know. Um, two of the guys and then another group of people we got to know throughout this process because we all started talking to like civil rights attorneys and all this like yo this was this is nuts right we're freshmen in college right you know this this type of stuff should never happen and all of us look completely different you know i'm i'm you know five eight you know light skin uh you know my boys you know five ten a little darker complexion you know, these two guys are, you know, bigger, like, really heavy set guys, shorter guy. You know, just no rhyme or reason to it. So they were just running around town. Just like every black person. Any set of two were getting guns drawn on them. Well, it goes back to our climate today. Any wrong move, any type of resistance, any type of, you know, what the hell are you doing? And, you know, that could have ended somebody's life. And so those are you know, real situation. I get pulled over frequently. Uh, probably less now than I used to, but I used to get pulled over all the time. And they were, they've never been a pleasant experience ever. It's always been met with aggression. And it's human nature when somebody runs up on you and snatches your arms. Right. I'm reacting. That's just how I'm it sure works. I'm sure yeah. And that reaction can cost you your life. And then that's where the storyline gets told. Well, he had weed in the system. Mm. You know, must be a terrible guy. Right. You know, right. He stole a candy bar seven years ago. So he we was four. Criminal. Right. Past. So, so that, that, um, that's my kind of my, you know, first three real super violent police interactions. Um, and, my, and my story is not unique. You know, I could. We can right. sit here for hours talking about stories I've heard, people I've known that been beat up, you know, beat up, taken out of the neighborhoods, just all sorts of wild stuff. Dropped off by the river. Like, there's, there's all sorts of scenarios. We're not talking about, we're talking about regular people. You know, we're right. talking about college students. We're talking about college graduates. Um, I was at a bachelor party uh, for a friend of mine, and we were probably, you know, maybe 15 of us all sitting out in the garage having a beer. We're talking about everybody from doctors to uh, 
pharmacists to successful entrepreneurs. You know, we're, we're talking about a pretty good group of men in here. And everything who has achieved a great deal. And every single one of us has a story about guns being pulled on us by the police. So when the narrative starts that it's just the thugs, quote unquote. Right. People that are breaking laws and you know, they just don't want to deal with the consequences. That's just a that's just flat out false. It it happens across, you know, achievement levels if you want to call it that. Right. Um, you know, it's just not unique to the the thuggery that they try to paint it in. So what advice did your parents give you in terms of dealing with the police? I mean you you mentioned that they came here to Minnesota because the culture was appeared to be more accepting of biracial couples. So I'm sure they have seen they had seen that growing up too in terms of police brutality or the risks of society, etc. What advice did your parents give you? If you go in my car right now, you'll see a plastic sleeve that has my driver's license and my car insurance in it. And it sits right there, you know, by where I switch gears. That was something that was taught to me from the day I got my permit was you have this ready. When that officer pulls you over and he comes up to your window, you already have it out. You have your hands on the wheel. You have the information in your left hand. You have your window down already. So that when that officer approaches you, you're not reaching for nothing. You're not looking suspicious. Anything like that. That was part of my driver's training. Wow. Um, my daughter, you know, she got her. I did the same exact, had the same conversation with her. What was her reaction when you had that conversation? Um, did you she know, think it, she was over that you were overreacting? Yeah, yeah, she was like, you know, the, the typical come on, dad type of conversation. But, you know, I had to tell her, like, no, nah, this is real. Right. And I think at the time, you know, she's about to be 19 now. So, you know, we're talking about three, four years ago. I think at the time she might have been a little naive to kind of what's going on. But, I, you know, now she thoroughly gets it. Like, this is not this is not a game. Like, right. this is a real thing that can happen to anybody. Don't, it's your life. Don't let the fact that you're, you know, five foot and 100 pounds think that you're in any different situation because you can go on YouTube right now and pull up video after video of, you know, 14-year-old girl at a pool getting slammed to the ground by a 6'2", 240-pound officer. You know, women lose their lives. Yeah. To gunshots and violence while they're ladies. sleeping in their bed. Exactly. Yep. Just like anybody else. So that narrative is not just, you know, unique to, you know, men by any means. Right. Um, so yeah, she thought that was a little extreme, but she gets it now. And I think this is part of the, you know, upbringing. I'll, I'll tell my nieces and nephews, you know, as I'm sure my sister and brother-in-law will, but I'll, I'll tell them the same story that I was told from my uncle. You know, and so we talk about change and it's hard to break that generational pattern, not only from a perspective of racism, but the reaction to racism. You know, I'm already coming into a situation with hundreds of stories and examples of stuff that can go on. Well, you know, I feel a certain way about that. So when you come up to my car, yeah, we're every everybody is in a situation where we're all hostile. Yeah. And 
Or nervous, at the very least. Suspicious. Yeah, right. And you talked about, you know, what did my parents teach me? It was always teaching me to say, live to see another day. If, if we're in a war and you are pulled over, live to fight. Don't fight that battle right there. Mm. Fight that battle once you're in a position of power. And mm. a position of power might mean, you know what? Here, cuff me right now. Let's just skip all the BS. Right. Cuff me right now and then we'll let my lawyer handle this. Right. You want to live. It's not worth your life. Your reaction as a man, I just speak for myself, our reaction is very different than that. Our reaction is to, you know, this ain't how this is going to go down. Right. But I have to always be conscious of that. And that's what my parents put in me is like, no, this is not the time to be emotional, the time to be a thinker and to be strategic in how you're dealing with that person that's coming up to your car. So you have to go against every ounce of your nature and your being and try to be rational in a situation that you know could end with a loss of your life. Right. Yet you have to be the one to provide the rationale. Right. I don't know. I, I honestly, I'm a fighter. I'm very reactive. I don't know if I could do the same thing. And I don't know what that's like, honestly. And I just... It makes me angry, and I'm sorry that you've had to go through that. I'm sorry that you have to fight that every day. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's something that you just have to always look. You know, I'm in, in generally speaking, I'm a strategist kind of by nature. So I'm always thinking, you know, next move, five moves down the line. Um, it's very difficult because I'm also a fighter. So it's like that's my first reaction is, well, then let's go. That's just instinctively how it function. But you have to think strategically to save your life. Well, not everybody thinks strategically. No, and it, it, that to me, it sounds like you can never let your guard down. You can never let yourself go to the point of where, I mean, I'll admit it, like maybe have an extra drink that you shouldn't have had where, because I'm like, well, I mean, chances are nothing's gonna happen. And you know, like, if I was a person of color, I think I would see that differently because I have to be on guard so much that I cannot allow myself to be to let my guard down even yeah. a little bit. You know, a perfect example of that is, you know, my daughter called me a handful of months ago and said, you know, Dad, when you get an oil change to get on my car, um, my license plate light is out. I said, park it immediately. Exactly. Imme not, not later. Park that car right now. It's going to sit there. And then tomorrow I'm gonna come get it. And it is, I don't I don't have till the weekend. I don't have till next week. That license plate light, as stupid as it may seem, the two dollar light has to get fixed now because that's enough for you to get pulled over. And for her to lose her life. And that you getting pulled over, you say one thing smart because you're irritated or reactionary and that simple taillight being out or that simple license plate out can lead to you losing your life and things can escalate. And that's just a reality that is just, it's just present in the black community. You know, I don't, I don't know of anybody that probably, you know, hasn't been told these same things. You know, this isn't, it just kind of seems like a theme. I, I would be shocked if somebody didn't teach their kids the same things, you know, that my parents put into me. 
I can't recall a single conversation in my entire life how to react to the police. I mean, I was raised on you respect your elders, you respect people of authority, simple, fine, whatever. There weren't consequences if I was disrespectful. And mind you, I was many times. 30 didn't scare me. Man, I can't even imagine how different my life would be if I had to worry about every time I reacted that it could cost me my life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, we spoke earlier in this conversation about generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And when, you, when you're met with that kind of aggression, you know, it's not necessarily at the top of your mind what my ancestors went through, but it's there. Subconsciously, it's sitting there. To be able to control all of that anger in a moment like that is damn kind of bringing it full circle to these riots, that's what you're seeing. Right. You're seeing people that's like, man, I've had enough of this shit. I'm tired of holding this in. I'm tired of not doing shit. The voice of the unheard. And nothing happening, or I'm minding my own damn business, and now I have a situation where I gotta deal with this police officer? Nah, man, this ain't, this is it. And this George Floyd thing hit different. Yeah. It, it landed really, really different. I was in a fit of rage for weeks. I mean, we delayed this podcast because I was like, I can't talk about it rationally because I wanted to see this whole country burn. That's just how I felt. I don't care if this whole place burns. I don't care if everybody in this whole country dies. Let's go. That's fair. Um, now, I know that's not rational. That's not strategic, right? So then eventually, once the emotions calm down, well, you don't always have time yeah. to calm your emotions down. Right. You know? I get the privilege of being able to react to it any way I want. And my consequences are, um, let's see, somebody might block me on Facebook or call me a name. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Different. Very different. You know who Candace Owens is? Okay. She seems to have been in the spotlight recently with her views of opposition to the Black Lives Movement and, or Black Lives Matters Movement, sorry, and saying that, you know, people are responsible for their own situations and et cetera. What's your reaction to that? I have intentionally stayed away from a lot of her content because the snippets that I've seen has just, I've, lost my brain. So this last one that she actually didn't say this last one because she might have more since then, but within the week when she was talking about um, the black community uplifting the wrong people and talking about George Floyd. I, murder. I, I tried, I said, I clicked on the video and said, you know what, I'm going to try to just hear what she has to say. Maybe somewhere in there or something that there's an angle that I'm not catching. I got 30 seconds in and shut it off. What I would tell her is remember the lessons that your parents taught you and your grandparents taught you. And that is that family business is family business. That would be my, my first advice to her. Hmm. What I mean by that is, yeah, we, we have issues in the black community for sure that we need to fix. 
you know, I won't go into all of them right now. We'll call you back for that <laughs> when we get but to the, those but, subjects. But there, you know, there are things that, that for sure we need to improve on, right? Read the room. This ain't the time for that. That's family business. You have those conversations within your home, within your community, and amongst black folks on if you have feelings on what we're not doing well, what we need to do better. You don't put that out there to millions of people. Because what ends up happening is the opposition gets a hold of that and it's, oh, look, now I got my one black woman. Right who can justify how I'm feeling. Right. So all of this isn't really that big a deal. Because look, Candace Owens is saying it. She's black. And and that's not what we need. Now is not the time. You know, that man, it's been, it ain't even been a month. Right. If you, if you want to have critical discussions about stuff that we need to do and not do next year, Find a different forum. Be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Be part of the solution, right. But now is not the time to, you know, shit on this man's character or tell the black community who is in an outrage right now that we're not doing things right. There's not a right way to do this. There's not a right way to respond to a situation like this. It's easy to sit back and think orderly when you're not impacted. Right. But that's not what's going on here. And how she can be so removed from that hurt makes me question, like, everything about her. So I I wish I could say more because I don't know a lot of what she said because I just know, like, I know people like her. Yeah. Just put it like that. Right. And it is is maddening. Yeah, and it does seem that the people who want to justify their feelings or their actions and not look at what they can do to change it or better the situation. They're like, well, if one black person says it and she's educated or in a position of power or has money or whatever it is, then, well, if she did it, you can too. For sure. It's that old saying, that's our token Negro. Yeah. We got our spokesperson. Right. And, you know, anytime somebody like her speaks up, it's, well, the black community is saying, well, no, nah, that's not how this works. We don't have a leader. Right. You know, we're not, like, right. you know, we, we, there's millions of us. We don't have one leadership person that speaks for all black people. Like, just that thought is insane. You know, there's not a white leader that speaks for all white people. Like, that's, like the, the concept is just insane to me, but it gets put on us frequently. Yeah, and, that's true. You know, sometimes it's an Al Sharpton type. Yeah. Or Jesse Jackson, if we're going to throw out some old, older names. But now in a different era, when you have somebody, you know, like a Candace Owens that can get on Instagram and say her piece, well, then that starts shifting away from them and starts shifting to people like her. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, we got our spokesperson. What, if any, organizations do you think are most um, important to, to support in this movement, whether it's you know, local or national or any that um, you might want to bring awareness to, like, listeners. Like, hey, this one needs our help or, or this one seems to be making an actual difference. Mm. Um, you know, I'll probably have to think about that because I think what's going on now is we've had a tremendous 
you know, support that has come out. People have donated, you know, millions upon millions of dollars. Um, right. Right now, I think it's too early for me to answer that because I want to see what people are doing with sure. the money that they have. Um, That's a good point. I don't, I don't, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, you know, they've received more donations than they've ever received. What are we going to do with that now? Where does that go? I don't think that's yet to be seen. So to promote maybe, you know, one over the other would be irresponsible for me at this point. Um, I'm partial to the north side just because I grew up on this side of town. So anything that's north side, academic based, um, nice. that's where I like my attention to go to. Um, especially because, you know, these young kids are seeing this. Yeah. You know, you have, you know, I was just watching a post the other day about this, this um, you know, this young black girl started crying um, because a police officer drove by and put her hands up. She couldn't have been more than five, you know, maybe six. And she's picking up on one, just the vibe she can get from her parents. She's also, kids are savvy, you know, yeah. they're seeing all of this. They're sponges, they absorb all of that and process it. So I think anything that can get to the kids would be huge. You know, I'm a big advocate of therapy and having discussions, especially in the black community, is so taboo. We tend to internalize things and not have those kind of tough discussions in our letter because we don't have... You know, there's no room for us to let our guard down. Right. You let your guard down for a second, and it could be a problem. Be dead. So we internalize a lot of stuff, which leads to a whole other boatload of, of issues. But I would say anything that kind of gets behind services around therapy and, you know, things of that nature would be another thing I would support. I think the bigger stuff, like with police reform and, and stuff where people are putting money into that. I think that's going to, time is going to tell a little bit. I think it's a little too early to figure out, all right, what impact are your dollars making right. in these organizations? And um, those those things, the systemic changes, always seem to take the longest, right? Because you have to make the change, you have to implement the change, and then you have to wait for time to evaluate the change. But I do like what you're saying, like put it in locally to the schools to get the, the younger people the services so they don't have to experience those things, you know, the mental health. I know you and I have talked about this before, about economic responsibility. That's something that's also not talked about as prevalently in the communities of color. Possibly because there isn't much to talk about. I mean, you you know, the disparity is great, you know. You know, I'm, you know, we're talking about internal change and family business and stuff that, you know, we, you know, as black people have to kind of get together and, and start putting our energy into. I'm huge on that discussion about entrepreneurship, financial responsibility, investing your money, becoming financially powerful. Right. Um, when we start talking politics, we get a lot of discussion about voting, right? Fine. Great. Sounds awesome, right? But when you start peeling back the layers of what voting's about, there's money behind politics. Of course. And if you do not have an economic base to force politicians to do things, your voice is quiet on the voting. Politicians respond to who got me elected. Right. Who donated to my cause. 
And those are the first people that I need to reward for getting me in the office, whether it's local or whether it's all the way up the line. I need to take care of the people that got me here. Sure. Well, when you don't have a strong economic base to make those decisions, it's hard to influence change. And it's that economic base that gives you political power. It's that political power that starts making these changes within the police and all the way further up the line is when you start having some political clout. So I think the more that we educate young people on, like, let's, let's get this money strong, start pooling our money together, let's start investing in things that are substantial and have a long-term return, those conversations at a young age start to shift the narrative down the line. And, you know, that's, that's that family business stuff I was talking about <laughs> earlier, but, you know, those are things where if there's organizations out there like that that are, you know, doing financial education, Lord knows they don't teach it in our schools. There's an organization over North on Penn, and they used to do a group of financial literacy for young men of color. And I thought that was simply amazing. And and it hadn't crossed my mind that that's not something that's taught to them by their families until my son was exposed to that. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You need to learn that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because it's important. You look at the byproduct of stuff like, you know, slavery, and we had a discussion earlier about how it's so easy to say, oh, a lot of time has gone by, get over it. Well, when you look at how wealth functions in the United States, that's passed on generationally. Yeah. People are going back to the power conversation. People don't give up power. This is not how it works. Right. One, we're already starting way behind because of everything that we've gone through. So it's not, you know, I don't, I don't get to inherit bunch of money from my parents you know my, my parents are first generation college students you know and god bless them for that you know they they've done great they've taught me great they've been wildly successful in their own life but you know that doesn't go back generations so right you look at all this land around here that's all owned by somebody right we legally couldn't own nothing right not that long ago right somebody passes that's inherited to the next generation so on and so forth so those are things that you just can't dismiss. I don't get to have, you know, $500,000 inheritance that I can put into my first home. And and, I, and that's not the, the case for all white people by any means. I don't. No, but, but that's a very, very valid point. In, in fact, I was having this conversation um, with somebody in my family. When our ancestors came over from Norway, they were given land. Fortunately for them, the land was fertile. They did well. They were able to pass that land down from generation to generation. We still benefit from that land. They were able to move their purchase from one land to another because they owned it. They had something of value. They were able to survive on that. There are still oil rights on some of that land from generations before. That was nothing I worked for. Something as simple as oil rights, no one worked for that. That was given to them, you know, or you just got lucky with that piece of land that you purchased. But like you said, it's not too long ago that black people could not even own land. Yeah, there's going to have to take some time to catch up and be given the same opportunities. So it's just, you know, stuff that says um, the more we can talk about it within our community about ways to, you know, close that gap. And yeah. to, you know, we have to be just vigilant 
you know, this is this is something that we have to take extremely seriously because nothing's going to change. Yeah, it'd be great if people made all these changes to laws or passed some sort of reparation bills and things of that nature, all things that I support. But I'm also coming from a position that there's nothing that's telling me that that's ever going to happen. So right. I have to look at myself and the people next to me and say, all right, what can we do to be proactive and empower ourselves? And if we get help, great. But if not, it's on us. Or we're going to be looking 100 years from now and having the same exact conversation. Is there anything else that you would like, whomever might be listening whether it's a 15-year-old kid, a 60-year-old person, anything else that you think that we have not discussed that you would like to have heard? Yeah, I don't know. I think we we touched on a lot of good subjects. Um, I think the thing that kind of keeps coming into my mind is I'm concerned about what's going to happen. Um, if this acquittal takes place. And so if I was to kind of put a message out to everybody, it is continue to be strategic. A lot of this stuff feels intentional. I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy. Um, I think it's fun to kind of go down those rabbit holes now and then, but Thanks for good conversation. Yeah, you know, and, and Lord knows the government has done enough to prove that a lot of these conspiracies are, you know, exactly what they think they are. But this this feels very intentional. It almost feels like there's a bigger play in mind. So I would say, like, to stay vigilant, stay strategic, be smart about your moves because... This time around, it was buildings burning and all hell broke loose. I've told a lot of my friends, like, be grateful it was buildings and all hell breaking loose because there's another level that I'm worried we can see if something doesn't happen. I talked before about being strategic and moving in a way in which it's like, okay, don't do nothing emotional. Attack when you're in a position of power, a position of strength, regroup yourself. Um, that would probably be the message that I would put out to, you know, young and old is be smart about how this is handled next time around. If we look at the protests, there were a lot of people with ulterior motives that came into that protest. Right. A lot of people doing damage. That were not spray part of the movement. Black Lives Matter all stuff. That didn't have nothing to do with Black Lives Matter, for example. You don't want to get caught up in other people's agendas. You know, we want to stay smart. We want to stay focused on what we need to do and get active. I mean, now's the time. There's a lot of momentum right now. So the other piece of advice I would give is do not let this momentum stop. We see this happen time after time where we're, we're hyped for a week. Right. We're hyped for a month and then it gets quiet. This, we, we, we're rolling right now. Let's keep that momentum up. All, all people that's listening, that goes out to you know any person of any color. Right. Is if you're passionate about this and you give a damn, you cannot shut up. Now's not the time. Call everybody you know. You know, we talk about racism. 
you know, people have asked me, like, well, what do we do? You know, how do we help? Or, you know, questions along that line. And I'm just like, that's not, that's not our problem to solve. That's white people's problem to solve. Fair enough. Um, it's not, we're not creating racism. You know, we're not asking for these things to happen to us. We're right. just out here living our lives. Al Sharpton said at the memorial for George Floyd, he said it perfectly when he said, we're just at, we're not asking for handouts. We're not asking, you know, to be put in some special category. We're just asking for you to keep your foot off our necks. Right. That's it. Just, that's all we're asking for. Stop killing us unjustly and let us do our thing and we'll be fine. But if you want to get involved, Every problem that's ever been in American society has been figured out. This shouldn't be that hard to figure out how to solve it. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? It does, but people make it really, really complicated. So if you have connections, if you have resources, make those calls. Have them uncomfortable conversations. Start calling in them favors. Yeah. Somebody knows the judge. Right. Call that man up, man to man. Let's have a talk. Put some pressure on. Put some heat on. Yeah. If you've given politically, uh, given money to politically, put pressure on them people. Right. Hey, I want my voice heard. Right. You are, you are a politician. You are here to serve. You are here right. to represent the people. Public servant. Now is the time for my voice to get heard. So I, I would say just stay, stay focused and, you know, let's keep this momentum going. Things are happening. Conversations are taking place. Um, I would like to see it more tangible. Right. But I do like the fact that at least people are starting to get a little bit more involved than they have in the past. So I'm encouraged by that. Well, I'm glad to see that you're still encouraged, despite all of the crazy that's happening and unfairness and injustice well i thank you for your time you've been very insightful and i hope that our audience um learns as much as i have so thanks for your time jason hey, thank you for having me and yeah let's do it again because there's much more to talk about oh yeah following our interview with jason he had the following thoughts black men it is our responsibility to protect our family and our community that not only means physically, but also financially. I highly encourage all black men to get a carry license, own a legal firearm, and purchase as much life insurance as you can afford. Additionally, focus on these three pillars of wealth building, home ownership, stock market investing, and entrepreneurship. Thank you, Jason, for those follow-up thoughts. Mm -hmm.